0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is the sound of a cutting-edge cannabis research lab at CU Boulder. It's actually a modified sprinter van nicknamed the Mystery Machine or the van. CPR's Sam Brash looks at how researchers use it to drive around federal drug laws.
1: There's one source of marijuana for clinical research in the United States. It's a 12-acre cannabis farm at the University of Mississippi, run by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA. Researchers battle through piles of paperwork to request the drug. And then...
2: One day after you pass through all those hoops, your government marijuana just arrives in the mail.
1: That's Cinnamon Bidwell. She's a cognitive science researcher at CU Boulder and says there's a problem with the federal marijuana. It's weak stuff. Bidwell found its average THC potency is between 5 and 6%, THC being the main compound that gets you stoned.
2: And now your average THC potency in Colorado is something closer to 16.5%.
1: That's according to Bidwell's research on recreational marijuana in Metro Denver. After legalization, Kent Hutchison, another researcher at Bidwell's lab, looked for ways to study the more potent marijuana
3: on the Colorado market. And so the first thing we did was we thought, well, we'll bring people into our lab on campus, have them use cannabis, and then study the effects.
1: The request hit a snag with the CU Boulder legal team. The university receives over $300 million a year in federal research grants. If scientists didn't follow the letter of federal law, the legal team worried the government could take away that money. It meant scientists couldn't buy, dose, or even touch cannabis from a Colorado pot shop for their work. So Hutchinson went back and forth with the lawyers. And what they came up
3: with was we can't bring people to campus and have them use cannabis, but we can bring the lab to the people.
1: Enter the Canavan. Here's how the van works. Scientists assign study participants who are all regular marijuana users a certain cannabis product. They buy it on their own. When the van shows up, they enter sober and run through a battery of tests. Then they go back into their homes, get as high as they want, and return to the van for the same tests. I couldn't see this in action. Having a journalist along could mess with the results. But Taylor Armstrong, a research assistant who works on the Canavan, ran me through the test battery. Ready to start? Ready. It starts with a breathalyzer just to make sure alcohol won't interfere. Perfect. All zeros you there's a blood draw to see how much THC is in a subject's system i didn't need that part then participants memorize a list of grocery items
4: lemons bacon
1: they take some cognitive tests on an ipad
2: these the same that's right and
1: do a balance test and a driving simulation then they try to recall that grocery list from earlier bacon gum ah, i'm losing it man this is hard Not my strong suit. Anyway, subjects earn $150 for their participation. Bidwell says the method has a clear advantage in the current legal landscape.
2: We're able to add the elements of laboratory control that we would like to have in place without dosing them or providing the products.
1: And she can observe impairment right after use. Hutchison, the other Canavan researcher, says there are also clear drawbacks. We don't control the dose. We don't control how they take it. Um, So that means there's a lot of variability in the data. While it's imperfect, newer products like marijuana concentrates have made their research more urgent. If traditional marijuana flour is beer, concentrates are like vodka plus. To recap, research cannabis from the federal government is around 6% THC. Retail marijuana in Denver is around 17% THC. And as for high-end concentrates.
2: These products have potencies of THC that are very regularly up to 90%.
1: That's 90, like nine 0
2: We're talking about a very different animal.
1: Sales of concentrates in Colorado nearly tripled between 2014 and 2016. That's according to BDS Analytics, a cannabis data company. Colorado is funding a VAN study of concentrate users. A second VAN study looks at the effects of marijuana flower. That one is paid for by NIDA, the same organization that provides low-potency marijuana to scientists. Researcher Kent Hutchison says federal authorities might have been unsure of the VAN method at first, but... They've come around. There's some sympathy on the part
3: of reviewers for this situation, where we we desperately need the data, and there's no good way to do it other than the way we've identified.
1: In other words, even the feds are climbing aboard the canavan. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: The canavan is operated by CU Boulder's Change Lab. Clinical psychologist Kent Hutchison helps lead it, and we're going to talk about some of the big scientific mysteries of cannabis. And he's on the phone with us from Boulder. Hi, Kent.
5: Hi, how's it going?
0: I'm good. Thanks for being with us. So I understand that your lab has really focused in on marijuana potency. Uh, what have you learned there? How is stronger weed affecting people's drug use?
3: Yeah, so that was actually one of the uh, the first questions we were funded to look at. And so far, you know, we, we have uh, collected a fair amount of data, although we're still working on it. But the initial impression is, you know, when you compare, for example, People who are using concentrates, so very high potency THC, they, uh, they do have higher blood levels than people who are using flour. But when you look at some other variables, like how they perform on cognitive tests and uh, you know, how high they report being, they don't look that different. At least that's our initial impression. No. It makes some sense, right? Because people, obviously, if you're you know, using a lot of cannabis, you develop some tolerance to that, uh, to that cannabis, So. I think that's probably what we're seeing here is that people who transition from flour to concentrates actually are showing greater levels of tolerance.
0: Uh, what does that say about our physiology or about our use of the drug?
3: Yeah, you know, the physiology part is kind of important, right? Because even if they're not showing differences acutely to the higher potency concentrate, the question becomes if your body has adapted, if your brain has adapted to the high-potency product, you know, what happens when you stop using it, right? So I think that's going to be the direction we end up heading after this is is asking or answering that question of, of, you know, if you're using that much, if your body's adapted to it, you know, when you try to stop, do we start seeing some some problems?
0: What do you mean by problems? Be specific about that.
3: Yeah, so maybe withdrawal symptoms, maybe greater withdrawal symptoms, also maybe some cognitive, cognitive effects. So maybe, you know, you're... Attention and memory looks more normal while you're using it, but when you stop using it, you start seeing problems with cognition. Again, mm-hmm. these are sort of hypotheses, and, you know, we this is all brand new, right? We didn't have these uh, super high-potency products on the market, say, you know, 10 years ago, right? So, so this is, I think, an important area of research.
0: Uh, lots of unanswered questions there, but preliminarily, does that mean that public health concerns over marijuana concentrates, like hash or shatter, could be overblown?
3: You know, that's, I think it's too soon to say that okay. for sure, right? And again, just because, you know, this is, we are just starting this research. And, and, and so it, it could be the kind of thing that we're not seeing big differences acutely. I and mean, we'll see when we're done with the study. But, but again, we haven't looked, we haven't looked at what happens when you try to stop, right? And it does make sense, and this is true for, you know, other drugs as well, that then you know, the more you get exposed to, um, potentially the more problems you have when you try to stop.
0: I want to talk about pain. So a recent study found a decline in opioid deaths after Colorado legalized recreational marijuana. Do you take that as good evidence that marijuana works as an effective substitute for pain relief?
3: You know, the the way I take that is that's that's a strong indication that we need to do some some careful research on cannabinoids with respect to pain and with respect to the opioid epidemic, right? So you know these studies are and it's not just one of them; there's several out there now. They are um, you know large studies but not well controlled mm. and so definitely they provide the the evidence that you would want to see to move forward with more carefully controlled studies but But I do want to stress how important it is that we actually do those studies. I mean we clearly we have an opioid epidemic, chronic pain is one of the, the biggest problems we have you know in, in in this country, and if cannabinoids or cannabis products can help with that without all of the problems that come along with opiates, I mean, that's a, that's a major, major thing that we should be looking at.
0: Help me understand, when you say cannabinoids, um, help me understand what it is you're looking specifically at in cannabis, uh, because, you know, THC is the active ingredient that makes you high. There is cannabidiol, CBD, which is less intoxicating, but that, you know, many find helps with pain, anxiety, do you look at those separately? Do you look at those in combination? Uh, break that down in layman's terms for me.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question. You know, and this is one of the the uh, nuances that maybe people don't fully understand is that cannabis has a number of different active uh, components. And you mentioned, too, that the major ones, THC and cannabidiol or CBD. And so, you know, when people are, are um, taking cannabis or doing cannabis research, we don't always understand exactly what people are are taking, right? When they say, "Well, I'm using cannabis for something," yeah. what does that mean? Is it mostly THC? Is it mostly CBD? And so this is a you know that combination of those two and maybe others could be key to understanding the effects of the, of the cannabis product.
0: And so you're looking uh, at those not in isolation, but as they interact together and perhaps their own separate. Characteristics. I understand that this this question recently got quite personal for you. Uh, Your wife, who helps run the Change Lab at CU Boulder, recently had surgery for cancer, uh, which means that she faced a choice about how to manage her pain afterwards. Uh, What what did she decide?
3: Yeah, well, that that's. uh, I mean, it was was an eye opening thing for us, right? Because you know we're scientists; we've been sort of looking at these issues. you know, with, with some distance, right? And all of a sudden, it became a personal thing. So we've been we've been studying this for you know last four or five years. And yes, back in December, she was diagnosed with cancer. And so, you know, the, two weeks later, we're talking to the surgical team about you know pain management, post-operative pain management. And so, you know, we, she she is a person like many who have you know really severe side effects to opiates. And so, she asked the team you know, what about cannabis? Is there a cannabis, you know, alternative in terms of pain management? It was really interesting to see the, the response, right? Because what they basically said was, um, you know, we don't know because there's been no research, right? There's no evidence. We, we wish we could tell you, you know, here's here's a product that works, you know, here's the way to administer it, here's the right dose. But we just, there's no evidence base. There's no research. And all we can tell you is if you find something that works, Use it right, and so on the one hand, that's it's kind of cool that they are open-minded, you know, that the healthcare providers. Uh, on the other hand, I think it says something about our, I don't know, our society or this sort of where we're at right now, right? That we there's no research that could be used to guide doctors who are trying to make recommendations for people who don't want to use opiates, and there's no research to guide the patient. So yeah, she basically the message you have to kind of experiment on yourself. Which is not ideal, but that's what she did. Yeah, she didn't. She went through a major surgery. You know, eight hours eight hours in surgery didn't take a single opiate um, afterwards. Just used cannabis and and ibuprofen to control the pain. And then you know on down the road too, there you know there were other surgeries and and I think at that point she had pretty pretty well dialed it in in terms of you know how to use uh, cannabis products instead of opiates. So. It's tough, right? When we, we have a head start. You know, this is our area of research, and you know, we were familiar with research in other countries. We're familiar with products on the market in other countries. Sativex is one of them.
0: But even, but even when, you when, have to navigate somewhat uncharted waters here. If you're just uh, joining us, I'm speaking with Kent Hutchison, who's one of the leading cannabis researchers in Colorado. He's a clinical psychologist based at CU Boulder's Change Lab. And Kent, I, I hope she's doing well now, just briefly. Yes, yeah, she's doing well. Thank oh, you. God. Yes. Thank you. Um, well, I, I want to speak a bit to that that frustration I, I think I heard from you, which is—I and I think this has often been described as a chicken-and-egg proposition—you've got uh, lots of restrictions on how you can research marijuana, uh, and yet you want to research it so that there's more information, so that you might convince what the federal government to change its stance potentially— on this drug, uh, do you do you find yourself pulling your hair out?
3: Oh, absolutely! You know, it's you definitely heard the frustration in, in my voice. But the reality is, you know, you talk to patients, PTSD patients, you know, <laughs> they're right because, yeah, the, the inability of the research, and as a researcher, you know, it's just it's. It's difficult, right, Um, to see that, you know, in Colorado, you know, we'll sell, what, 600,000 edible units a month, something like that. You know, there are lots of patients who are taking the products, and, you know, at the university here, we are prohibited from doing any research. So, for example, we have some Nobel-winning, you know, um, scientists. You know, if we we take our best chemist and and say that chemist wants to study the safety or the the purity of a product, they're not allowed to do that, right? We can't bring it on campus. We can't study it. Our, you know, our best neuroscientists can't look, for example, at the effects of concentrates on the brain in, in a rodent model because you can't bring it on campus. You're not allowed to, to touch it or work with it. And so it's just it's this really horrible situation, right, where there's clearly a public health need for the research, but the universities mm-hmm. won't let us do the research,
0: Thanks so much for sharing your perspective with us. Thanks for having me. And our thoughts are with your family. That's clinical psychologist Kent Hutchison. He's with CU Boulder's Change Lab and is one of Colorado's leading cannabis researchers. There is a debate over the use of presidential power to protect large swaths of land as national monuments. Bears Ears is at the crux. Before he left office, President Obama designated more than a million acres across the border in Utah as a national monument. President Trump will decide soon whether to shrink Bears Ears. If he does, and reports are that he's leaning that way, it could signal a major shift in how monuments are created here in Colorado and across the country. Environmental historian Paul Sutter of CU Boulder is watching this closely. And Paul, welcome to Colorado Matters. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ryan. This presidential power to create national monuments comes from something called the Antiquities Act. Just briefly, what is it? So the Antiquities Act was
6: passed in 1906, and it did three really important things. The first was that it made it illegal for people to remove antiquities, uh, objects of antiquity, from sites, particularly in, in the Southwest, that were sites of ancient Uh, native um, life. It also then gave the president uh, power to declare by public proclamation historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest, and that scientific is really important, that were situated on public lands as national monuments. And in the process, it also gave the president the power to set aside parcels of land um, to protect those monuments Uh, though with the crucial caveat that they'd be the smallest area compatible with proper care and management. And then finally, the act um, created a permitting system for uh, excavation and collection of objects on the public lands that largely
0: confined those activities to legitimate scientific uh, interests. Smallest area possible. Those seem like awfully critical words in this debate.
6: Um, they, they are in many ways, and, and, and lots of the opponents of how the um, Antiquities Act has been used in recent um, decades have really set upon that. Um, and I, I think the initial intent was to instruct the president not to go too far in um, setting aside lands beyond the needs for protecting um, the objects that were at the center of a particular proclamation. But importantly, the courts have been really deferential to Um, presidential uh, power in this regard.
0: Back in April, President Donald Trump ordered Interior Department Secretary Ryan Zinke to review 27 national monuments, including Canyons of the Ancients in Colorado, which has since been taken off the list, actually. But uh, this is Trump signing that order.
7: The Antiquities Act does not give the federal government unlimited power to lock up millions of acres of land and water And it's time we ended this abusive practice.
0: And so Trump has said that this presidential power means people who live in these regions can't decide how best to use these lands for, say, recreation, economic benefit. Uh, He says he wants states to have more authority. And the president is pretty plainly saying that past presidents have abused the Antiquities Act. Uh, It doesn't sound like courts have uh, exactly agreed with that.
6: No, they haven't. And I think we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the act to really make sense of this. Part of the debate actually included some language within earlier renditions of the Antiquities Act that included things like scenic preservation and uh, and other sorts of powers. And and while those were eliminated from the final act of 1906 itself, the provision for protecting areas of scientific interest uh, was a really critical one. Um, and, and did allow presidents to protect fairly large areas. And there, the fact that there was no specific acreage uh, delimitation in the law, I think, is also an important one. And, and most people who have looked at this have argued that this was a kind of middle way between a, a truly expansive um, presidential power uh, and a much more constrained one. Now, almost immediately after this act was passed, Theodore Roosevelt, who was president and signed it into law... Um, created a whole series of national monuments, including the Grand Canyon National Monument. This was, you know, what would become the Grand Canyon National Park at over 800,000 acres. And um, this sort of set people back a little bit. But in 1920, uh, a federal court um, did rule that the president was well within his power to declare a national monument of that size. And that really set a precedent that I think presidents have followed. So by and large, the courts have been very deferential to presidential prerogative when it comes to determining what constitutes that smallest area possible and also what constitutes objects of um, scientific, historical, or archaeological importance, including
0: entire landscapes. Bears Ears National Monument spans more than a million acres in Utah, and it's it's Red Rock country, a place filled with cultural and historic significance from rock art to American Indian dwellings and granaries. Is what I hear you saying that... Uh, President Obama's actions declaring it a national monument, are not the exception here, but that what might be exceptional is President Trump shrinking a previous president's monument. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that is true. And I think the other thing that's worth
6: mentioning initially is that um, a lot of this springs from the Grand Staircase-Escalante uh, set aside during the Clinton administration where there wasn't a whole lot of um, process. Involved, but it is important to recognize that the Bears Ears designation came at the end of a very long process uh, that included lots of input from all sorts of people, including local people, and that that in many ways deferred to a legislative effort um, to try to get this land set aside uh, with congressional approval. and And when that didn't work out, President Obama set it aside as a national monument, albeit of about 550,000 acres less than the tribes. Uh, who were the main proponents of this, wanted, in part, again, in deference to local interests. Now, there are some examples of presidents reducing the size of national monuments in the past. and the two most important are, um, first, uh, um, one that that was set aside in 1909, I believe, Mount Olympus, which would become Olympic National Park, was reduced by half. This was initially a 600-something-thousand-acre site that was reduced by about 300,000 acres in 1916 by Woodrow Wilson, in part arguing that the timber within the area was needed during the First World War. And then there was um, a Grand Canyon National Monument. This is a little confusing because the Grand Canyon National Monument set aside by... um, uh, by Roosevelt would become a national park, but then there'd be another one set aside by Hoover as an addition to the park as a monument. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt would also reduce that by about seventy thousand acres. So there are examples of presidents having done this, but there were never any real legal challenges to these. So we don't really have a sense of whether presidents had the legal power to do that. And then very quickly, the last thing is that the Federal Land um, Policy and Management Act of 1976 also ups the ante here and makes it less likely that the president has power to. Uh, abolish um, or potentially even reduce the
0: size of a national monument. Ah. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Paul Sutter, environmental historian and chair of the history department at CU Boulder. Uh, In the context of Bears Ears National Monument in neighboring Utah, Uh, There is talk, and uh, it looks like the president is leaning towards shrinking that national monument, which was created at the tail end of the Obama administration. I I guess I'd like to know, Paul, what a national monument is exactly? I mean, I think if you ask 10 people, nine of them wouldn't be able to tell you what protections that affords or doesn't. I mean, it's not like all activity that goes on on that land immediately stops or or is banned or something. Right. So it...
6: There's a wide variation. It tends to be um, less stringent than national parks, for sure, and certainly less stringent than designated wilderness areas um, that are probably the most stringent form of protection we have. But in most cases, and particularly in recent cases, the the creation of a national monument does prohibit um, uh, mineral and other sorts of mining activity. It may or may not uh, prohibit uh, off-road vehicle use or mountain biking or things like that. Wait, would that mean, just really sort would that of mean
0: new activity? Is that, or is that retroactive?
6: Right. Yeah, I think it's mostly new activity. I'm okay. not exactly sure on that. All right.
0: So uh, this notion that, that a national monument stays pristine in some regards yeah. would, would be uh, not the, the right way to capture it.
6: Probably not the right way to capture it, in part because mostly these are being protected, mostly but not always, these are being protected as landscapes um, that have a lot of history to them. And in in some ways, this goes to, you know, one of the problems with the wilderness idea itself, which suggested that there are these vast landscapes in America that had absolutely no history to them. And I think one of the really powerful things about the Antiquities Act and the National Monument System, it is recognizing these landscapes that have really profoundly important natural and ecological values, but also have deep historical value uh, as well. And in a case like Bears Ears, I think one of the really interesting things that we see in that is because it was to a great degree a tribally driven uh, process, we, in some ways we see the dif- distinction between natural and cultural uh, even collapsing there because some of the natural areas that are protected. Are, are claimed to be of immense cultural importance to the Native peoples who were behind this.
0: There are really two things going on here. So there's the immediate decision the president is to make about whether to shrink bear's ears, right. uh, which could come in, in December. He has a trip actually planned, the president does, to Utah. Yeah. A lot of people are thinking that's when the announcement will come. Uh, and there's also consideration in Congress of larger changes to the Antiquities Act, right?
6: Right. So there is a, a bill that has been introduced by uh, Rob Bishop from Utah, uh and And he wants to fundamentally change the nature of the antiquities act to limit presidential power with the possible exception of the presidential power to um diminish or or revoke these uh proclamations, and he also wants to make sure that the size of these monuments is is quite small, so anything below six hundred forty acres in his bill would be. Uh, possible to um, designate by the president without any sort of review. But when you get above 640 acres, up to 10,000 acres, those areas would require environmental review under the National Environmental Policy Act. And between 10 and 85,000 acres, it would actually require approval of state and local government. Um, and so this would create a, a, a real series of limitations on the president's power to use the Antiquities Act.
0: Uh, have both Democrats and Republicans declared monuments?
6: Yeah. So this is, I mean, I think this is really important. 16 different presidents have declared more than 150 national monuments. Almost every president, I believe, the only ones who haven't are Nixon, Reagan, and the first President Bush. Um, but but this has been a largely bipartisan practice. Um, it's been a practice in which presidents have often, you know, attempted to burnish their conservation credentials by huh. uh, setting aside lands. But it's also been a practice um, where presidents have reacted when Congress has been, for whatever reason, unwilling to act to protect areas of critical historical archaeological scientific importance. And and, and in that regard, I think it's a very important presidential power. It gives a kind of uh, uh, emergency power to the president um, when Congress grinds to a halt on uh, critical conservation issues.
0: Thanks for the long view. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Paul Sutter is an environmental historian and chairs the history department at CU Boulder. A decision on whether to shrink the Bears Ears National Monument in neighboring Utah is expected from the Trump administration next month. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner And the following are quotes... Dear Mexican, what is it with Mexicans and firecrackers? Why is your food so damn tasty and yet so bad for you? Why do Mexicans park their cars on the front lawn? For 13 years, Gustavo Ariano has fielded questions like those in his weekly syndicated column, Ask a Mexican. Westward ran it for much of that time. It was a tongue-in-cheek way to address racism and debunk stereotypes. Now the column has come to an end, and Ariano is on the phone. Gustavo, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, as always. Uh, we'll get to why the column's ending in a bit, but first, uh, it began in the OC Weekly in 2004 in California, but it was, it was supposed to be a one-time joke, I understand. Is that right?
7: Yeah, it was supposed to be a one-time joke. Uh, we, uh, you know, d- just to show you how much things have changed in journalism, 13 years ago, we had space that we had to fill in the newspaper. Of course, now there's no more space anymore. So it was just supposed to be a joke. Just I had to fill in the space. It became so popular, so notorious, I like to say, immediately that we figured, well, we might as well continue this column until there's no more questions to be answered. And 13 years later, there's still a lot of questions to be answered about Mexicans. America did not fail me at all in this.
0: What was the first question and who wrote it?
7: It was. I actually. It was the only time I made up a question for the column. Since remember, it was supposed to be just a joke column. So I thought to myself, what's the dumbest question people always ask me about Mexicans? At least at the time, and it was, why do Mexicans always call white people gringos? And my response was that Mexicans don't call gringos gringos. Only gringos call gringos gringos. And Mexicans actually call gringos gabachos. And of course, if you know, if, if you paid attention to the answer, it was a stupid question response. I contradicted myself twice. Yes, Mexicans do call white people gringos, also gabachos, also bolillos, also mayonesa, also yankees. And that's just what I could say on public radio. I mean, there's <laughs> many other things I could say. But, you know, the purpose I wanted to do with, a, with, at least with the answer, just to show the, not just the stupidity of people having questions about Mexicans, but also showing the silliness in assumptions that people have about Mexicans. And people obviously took to it very, very quickly.
0: Was one of those mayonesa? Did, does that mean mayonnaise?
7: Mayonnaise, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, mayonnaise. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to give the reason why, but yes, mayonnaise.
0: Okay. Uh, now, you said at first that it, this was popular, and then you you used the word notorious uh, as a more yeah. accurate term.
7: Yes, because not everyone was a fan. I mean, and, and, and as a reporter, and especially as a columnist, actually— you don't care whether people like you or you hate you as long as they read you. I mean the great columnist like one of my idols was has always been H L Mencken, the great columnist from the 1920s. a guy who just loved to you know pick at people. And on my end, like I don't I didn't really care. That's why I say notorious because there was good liberals who loved the column, there were good conserv- uh, good liberals who hated the column, there were good conservatives who hated the column, there were good conservatives that liked the column. So it was... The hatred and the love was all across the political, ideological, racial, and even uh, generational spectrum. But the great thing about it was that people read it and people had a feeling about it one way or another.
0: I understand that uh, some folks very specifically did not like that you called white people gabachos. Can can you say on our air what that means?
4: Well, well, of
7: course, gabacho is just a harsher term. For white people than gringo, and the reason I did that is because everyone knows what gringo is at this point. I mean, white people love to call themselves gringos. They took that word away. I mean, they took away half of Mexico from the uh, you know during the 1848 Mexican American War. Now they're taking their word our words to insult them away from us and appropriating them. So I figured, let's just say a word that gringos still don't know yet, which is gabachos. In 15 years, I think everyone, will, gabachos will start calling themselves gabachos. So then on to the next insult, right? I mean, I mean, some people know what yankee is, but that's kind of antiquated at this point.
0: Uh, gabacho, I think, means like someone who doesn't quite speak the language right or something oh, like so,
7: that? So speci- oh, so you want the specific definition. Sure. A gabacho actually comes it is uh, Occitan, I believe the language is, oh no, Provençal. So one of, the, one of the dialects of France, whatever they speak on the French-Spanish border, and it was a word that the French would use, no, that the Spaniards would use to call French uh, for not being able to speak Spanish. So when we call you a gabacho, not only are we calling you a gringo, we're also calling you a Frenchie. So it's two insults with one stone.
0: All right. Well, <laughs> s- s- some of the questions were... I suppose, comparatively innocuous, like, why do Mexican girls wear frilly dresses? Uh, But they were often downright offensive. And here's one I can actually read on the air. Okay. Why why don't Mexicans want to assimilate and accept our way of life? All I see them do is wave their flag and put stickers with the name of their state on their cars. Uh, Do you remember your answer to that?
7: I don't remember the answer to it, but I could give sort of the stock response I always have for people who say Mexicans don't assimilate. And this actually goes to the question that went with the answer I'm about to give was, why, don't Mex- why can't Mexicans learn English? Are they too stupid to learn two or three words a day? And my response to that was that the United States government completely agrees with you. They came out with a study that showed that this new wave of immigrants are stupider than the old wave, and the old wave's did it the right way, and, like, we should have clampdowns on immigration. And it sounds just like what the Trump administration is offering nowadays, but that study that I'm talking about is the called the Billingham Commission. That came out in 1912, and the idiot immigrants at the time were Italians, were Greeks, basically all of Southern and Eastern Europe, so Jews, uh, Bulgarians, and all that, and the immigrants that they were lionizing in 1912, where the Anglo's, you know, the English immigrants, the German immigrants, and all that. So, oh, and at, so this is over a century ago, and we were having the same debates about assimilation and what all this unchecked immigration means to the United States a century ago. And what happened to all those immigrants? They assimilated. A lot of those, a lot of the children and grandchildren of immigrants are now demanding that Mexicans learn how to speak English and all that. And so, what I, you know, sort of my longer picture view of all this is that. These questions about assimilation, you can talk about immigration and its cost all you want, but when it comes to assimilation, it's inevitable. No matter what people may try to do to not assimilate, they will assimilate one way or another. And anyone who doesn't know that is as deluded as Tom Tancredo.
0: Uh, with them's fighting words uh, with oh, hey, Hey,
7: don't forget, a couple of years ago, me and Tom debated at Su teatro, and before that, we ate great uh, green chili tamales at Noa Noa right across the street.
0: Uh, he has obviously just joined the governor's race. You're, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Gustavo Ariano, who for many years wrote the syndicated column Ask a Mexican, which recently ended. It ran locally and westward for many years. And what do you think it accomplished, Ask a Mexican?
7: I'm not going to, I'm going to leave others to debate that. For my final column, like, I had a farewell column. At that point, I couldn't call it Ask a Mexican anymore. But for the papers that remained that syndicated the column, I said, I'm going to leave that to other people to, uh, you know, argue whether I was a visionary or a vendido. In other words, a sellout. What I, all I could offer are personal anecdotes. And, you know, I, I've had people saying, I grew up reading Ask a Mexican, and you made me proud of being a Mexican. Or more importantly, they said, you made me, not ashamed to be Mexican anymore. And that, I mean, what stories like that, absolutely touch you. I, I, you and so if I was able to make at least one person not feel ashamed of being of Mexican heritage, then to me, the column was worth it.
0: You made reference to this, that the trademark to Ask a Mexican is owned by the newspaper uh, OC Weekly. And I want to say by way of background that the column came to an end because several weeks ago you resigned as editor of that weekly after, uh, after you were mm-hmm. asked to lay off some of your staff. Uh, why the staff. Half the staff? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why not continue the column under a different name, though?
7: I, because at that point, I figured if if I was going to, uh, yeah, and what mostly, especially in Denver, what most people didn't realize was that I was based in Orange County. A lot of people thought I was based in Denver when they would read me in Westward. Uh-huh. I, my, my journalism career had been in Orange County, California, where I was born and raised. I was the editor of the OC Weekly for six years, my entire uh, prof- professional uh, sort of uh, personality, if you will, was based on being editor of the OC Weekly and author of this Ask a Mexican column. And when when the OC Weekly part came to an end, and I had a meeting with my boss at the time, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, I think you could write for us Ask a Mexican on a contract basis. I thought, you know what? I don't want to do it. I also don't have a bunch of money, just in case. Like, I, I, I explored my legal options, and I, I just came to the conclusion that at least as a column, I'm just not going to do it anymore, even under a different name. And a lot of people have asked me to continue doing it, and I reserve the right to do it in the future under a different name. But at least right now, me personally, I just have to move on. I don't like looking back in the past. I don't like grasping on to, um, you know, to what happened at the past. But hey, you know what? We'll always have chubbies.
0: You'll always have chubbies. You're making reference there (laughs) to the restaurant in Denver that in a, a book you wrote, you actually I said served one of the best Mexican dishes in the country.
7: The best. The Mexican hamburger. The original one <laughs> off of Lipan and, what, 38, I forget, which I hear now is a very gentrified neighborhood, unfortunately. But, yeah, I mean, well, and the sad thing for me, I mean, I haven't come out in Westward in a couple of years. Yeah. and I don't hold that at all against Patty Calhoun, the editor there, or the staff of Westward. That was just a decision that their parent company chose to make. I would not have charged Westward at all to carry my column. That one I have to admit hurt because— I have, like, my two biggest fan bases outside of Orange County were in Albuquerque and in Denver, and for reasons I've never quite, well, at first I didn't, but now I do, but Denver just adopted me as one of their own, and every, anytime I would go, we'd go to, um, you know, to, I'd have signings at stores there, I, I did a lot with Suisse Astro and there were always packed audiences, Denver was always so kind to me, and thankfully I still have friendships there, that means, I, I you know, I'm not going to be a stranger to Denver, but, you know, ending the column, that was about two years ago. It really sucked. It really did.
0: Uh, you mentioned Suteatro—that that is the theater company in Denver. Um, you've been with the OC Weekly for many years, as you've said, and, and you've worn many hats, editor, staff writer, columnist, restaurant reviewer. Um, what what do you think is next for you?
7: I have no idea. I honestly don't. Um, I, I, I I'm obviously talking to papers both regional and southern California and national, hopefully as a staff position. If that doesn't work out, I could always strike out on my own. Uh, but, you know, I'm already freelancing a couple of pieces, uh done stuff for the this really great uh, Latino website. I'm actually gonna do a I did a humongous, a thirty five hundred word essay about the death of all weeklies for Reason Magazine, the libertarian publication that I've been contributing to for the past couple of years. So I, if, if people want to follow me, they could always find find me on Twitter at Gustavo Ariano or look on Facebook for Gustavo Ariano. I'm the Gustavo Ariano that's holding a taco, of course, because there's many other Gustavo Arianos <laughs> in this world.
0: But my thank, hope, thank you, is, Gustavo. I'm so yeah. sorry. I'm going to have to end it no there. I, I appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us.
7: It's been, gracias for having
0: me. Gustavo Ariano wrote the syndicated column "Ask a Mexican," which recently ended. It ran locally and westward for many years. And as we said, Ariano was also editor of the OC Weekly, the alternative newspaper in Orange County, California. Election Day is Tuesday. There aren't any statewide issues or candidates on the ballot, but passions are running high in a lot of local races. Reporter Allison Sherry is watching things in Aurora and spoke with CPR's Mike Lamp.
8: On the city council, there are five open seats, and two of those seats are, being, are held by incumbents who are being challenged. The others are wide open. And the candidates running right now are a little younger, a few more people of color. The current council is all white. Um, some of the community advocates and the editorial board of the local paper has criticized the current council for not being more aggressive on supporting some of the poorer people in the community um, a little bit more via policies that would promote, say, affordable housing or helping the large immigrant community. Um, who live in Aurora? Um, and as a side note, these races have also gotten kind of nasty in final days. Right now, there's a current spat between two candidates about someone covering up signs or taking down another's yard signs. So that's where we are.
5: Wow! So there are five city council seats uh, up in this election. Is there one that really embodies this split that you describe?
8: Yeah, so I'll talk about one particular race. I think it underscores some of the bigger issues happening um, in Aurora. It's in Ward One, which includes East Colfax, which has a lot of low-income people. Um, the area right now is represented by a woman named Sally Munier. Uh, she is conservative. She is a Trump supporter, and she has led the resistance on some of the council's debates to sort of embrace policies like DACA or DREAMers. She's being challenged by a woman named Crystal Murillo. She's a young Latina. She grew up in Aurora. She's the daughter of immigrants, and she uh, graduated in 2015 from the University of Denver, so she's in her 20s. And she talks a lot about her strong ties in Aurora, her childhood, and wanting to add advocate for people of color, not just in immigration policies, but um, affordable housing and transit and that sort of thing.
5: So that is the Aurora City Council race. Is anything else going on in Aurora for this election?
8: Yeah, Aurora and its neighbor, Denver, both have pretty feisty school board races going on. And to learn a little bit more about those, I'm going to hand off to my colleague, Anne-Marie Awad. Hello.
5: Hello. Hello, nice to see you. Uh, My sense is that the conflict in school board races is often between those aligned with teachers' unions and a more traditional approach to public education, and those who want to see more charters and other reforms. Is that what's going on in Aurora?
2: That dynamic is definitely playing out in both Aurora and Denver. So both cities have school boards that are largely pro-reform. Denver has been on that path for about a decade. Aurora is coming to it somewhat recently, only in the last few years. You have about four union-backed candidates who have pledged to halt charter expansion in Aurora, and they're running against candidates who like the reforms and are campaigning on continuing down that road. The same push and pull is happening in Denver. So right now, DPS's school board is unanimously pro-reform. That's been a pretty safe majority for the last several years. And even in the District 2 race in southwest Denver, there's no incumbent, but the school board already has its kind of preferred candidate who's facing off against a union-backed candidate.
5: So this uh, debate has been going on for some time. Has it changed at all with the new administration in Washington and its emphasis on school choice?
2: It has become a lot more charged this time around you have many of the union-backed candidates and similarly aligned outside groups who are trying their best to tie the current board to President Trump and to Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. That's created a lot of rancor because the current board has condemned many of the policies that have come out of the Trump Education Department. Some of the flyers that are going out show candidates' faces literally pasted right next to President Trump or Betsy DeVos. Um, One candidate targeted by these ads, for example, she's a daughter of Mexican immigrants. She's a community organizer. She considers herself ideologically very different from Trump. And she said that she feels like there's a racist element to some of these ads.
5: Oh. Is it likely that either Denver or Aurora Public Schools could significantly change course with this election?
2: So there are four out of seven seats up for reelection on both school boards this year. And when it comes to Denver, you do have a board majority at stake, but it's not likely that the board is going to flip entirely. The pro-reform candidates are raising much more money in almost every single race. And Denver has voted for these policies time and time again. However, if even one seat flips, it's definitely going to change the dynamic of the board. And in Aurora, you're seeing far fewer incumbents running for seats. So change is almost guaranteed to some degree there.
0: That is CPR's Anne Maria Wadd and earlier Allison Sherry, both speaking with Mike Lamp. They're following local races in next week's election. Finally, today, our colleagues at CPR's Open Air recently hit a milestone, hosting their 500th session in the CPR Performance Studio. Since September 2011, Open Air has recorded more than 1,700 songs there. That's something around 115 hours of music, enough to provide the soundtrack for several cross-country road trips. The 500th session featured Nicole Miglis of the band Hundred Waters, sitting at CPR Steinway. This is the song Jewel in My Hands. nice to end the show with some goosebumps that's Nicole Miglis and she's featured as Open Air's 500th recording session in our performance studio she's with the LA band 100 Waters that's Colorado Matters for today you can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters I'm at CPR Warner and there are all kinds of ways to connect with us which you can find at CPR.org connect thanks for spending time with us this is CPR News